You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Kootenai Community. 1 Corinthians 13 today, again. Let's open in prayer. Father, you have an unconditional love for your elect, the church. And in that love, you have given us the Holy Spirit so that we might live out among ourselves and as a show to the world, your love for the church. We pray, Lord, this morning as we look into your word, it is convicting, it is restoring, and it is blessed. We ask that you would, in all three of those areas, help us to be convicted where we need to be convicted. Correct us and restore us where we need restoration. And let us be a blessing to those around us, reminding ourselves daily, that, but for the grace of God, there go we. And uh, Lord, your love is perfect, and it will be useful for us to remind ourselves of that every day and to study it in your word, whereas there is where we find the truth about your love. Help us today as we live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there are sections of Scripture that are not convicting but informational. Well, I, I guess the Holy Spirit can use anything to convict. He could probably use the names in Chronicles to convict you if, if, if he wanted to because he is God. But, but it can be said that there are sections of truth that are, that are corrective. There are sections that are informational. There are sections that are restorative. There are sections that are um, uh, in many, they have many other aspects. Scripture has many other aspects. But in 1 Corinthians, as I have been studying through this, one of the job casualties, if you will, of being a teacher is finding out how poorly you measure up to what you're teaching. And so as I've read through this section of 1 Corinthians again and again and again and studied it, I realize that, that I have failed in many areas in this little book, in this little chapter. But God is the God of not only conviction, but of restoring. And so as we look through the next few verses, I don't know how many will make it through today, let's be reminded by that. If you're, if you're astounded at how far, far short you fall, uh, from living out these truths. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and to strengthen you in, those, in the living of those things out because He will. This is so important and you can say that about every section of Scripture and, and, and I'm saying it about this. Um, as we look at some of the things that we're going to learn today, if you haven't already learned them like I thought I had, um, we're going to see that this is played out daily. In the Christian church, it's played out in the world. It's played out, I see it on social media regularly, the negative aspects here. And uh, these kinds of things, the things that I'm seeing that 1 Corinthians 13 counsels against ought not to be happening in the body of Christ. And so as I go through this, I, I let this finger point right at me. You know, they say when you're pointing at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Well, I've learned how to fix that. You point like this. Solved. Problem solved. So, and if there's anybody over to my left, they get pointed at too, but not me. 
So we left off last week on chapter 13, verse 5. I'd like to read through the whole chapter. Um, it's one of those chapters that's short, and then we can maintain continuity and, and context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffering, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So last week we left off with verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly, arrogantly. It does not seek its own. It, does not, it is not easily provoked, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Um, does Love keeps no record book of the wrongs that have been flung towards it. It is able to settle them in its own mind and in its own heart as it recognizes, one who has true love recognizes that God brings these things our way to mold us, to make us more like his son. Um, I think it was MacArthur that said, never let a good catastrophe go unused or never waste a good catastrophe. It's an opportunity to learn how to respond correctly. Now, in our world today, there's a lot of failing, probably no more than ever before, but what we have is we have a news media that is so interconnected that we can find out about the failings of somebody in a small town in South Georgia that in the past, even just 10 years ago, unless it was something of an incredible magnitude, you'd never know about it. And actually, frankly, that's how it ought to be. We ought not to be meddling in the strife of others, but we have found a way to meddle in everybody's strife it seems like. And so there's a lot of unrighteousness that's going on uh, that we are more aware of today. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing is people who are enjoying the exposure of that unrighteousness. And that is not something that God's love does. It says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love is never happy when someone else falls or someone else fails. Love never rejoices when wickedness prevails, but always rejoices when the truth prevails. The bitter, the bitter handmaiden of taking delight in the misfortune of others is the sin of gossip. It is never necessary, at least for certain at the beginning of a situation, to spread information and tales about those who have failed. Love seeks a way to heal and to help. In Galatians, Paul commanded that church 
to restore those who sin. He said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, and that's a, that's a, a, a picture word where something grabs you from behind. You're running along the ground, and <laughs> imagine some guy in a gopher hole, and he reaches up and grabs you by the ankle and trips you up. That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. Paul says to, when that happens, when one of you trips up, when you fall, when you fail, don't rejoice in it. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, the Greek word here used to translate, translated into the word restore was a commonly used one referred to taking a broken, torn up fishnet. When the, when the fishermen would go out and they would fish, they would catch all kinds of fish. Sometimes the fish were too big for the net and they would tear sections of the net. Before you could use that net again, you had to take it back in and you had to restore it. You had to sew the broken parts together and fix the broken knots. And it was, it was a fairly arduous task, and, but necessary. Otherwise, the net was unusable. The net was worthless with all these holes in it. And so that's the word. It's the restoring. It's to, it's to make something unusable or damaged or broken usable again. Repairing the holes and the damage. This is the concept that Paul is talking about in Galatians, that love lives out. Not only does it not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in helping restore the sinning ones back to, to wholeness and back to the truth. Now, the two words translated rejoice here are actually a bit different. The first is a Greek word that means to be happy about something. Love does not get happy about unrighteousness. It is to be exceedingly joyful. Love does not get exceedingly joyful when it sees someone whom it doesn't like fail. <laughs> That's a tough one. That can really be a tough one. It's, it, it's a, it, it, Paul reminds us to mark that person who gets great joy out of the misfortunes of others. They are either not a child of God at all, or they are one in whom bitterness has taken terrible root. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, uh, the writer of Hebrews reminds his listeners, and here's hearers, that means us, that be us, pursue peace, with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up, of, spring up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. When, when someone is bitter and they do not show love, they rejoice in unrighteousness. That, bitter, that bitterness is a ripple effect, and it affects people all around them. And you, you all know about that. You've been around bitter people, and you can see how it just, the, the fingers of bitterness reach out and touch people that may even not have any hand in causing the bitterness. Now, the second Greek word for rejoice is actually a strengthened version of the first that bespeaks, it actually talks about relationship. It's doing, it's rejoicing with someone. It, it means to rejoice with someone. It would not be too far off to suggest that this verse encapsulates what a spirit-led Christian would do when confronted with someone who had sinned. Not only were they not happy about that sin, but they would work with that person to bring them back to wholeness, to truth, to spiritual health, and then rejoice with them in that spiritual wholeness. They don't rejoice at the fall, but they rejoice in the restoration. And I know many of you have had a hand in restoring someone, and you know how pleasant, how wondrous that is to watch God take someone who has, in a spirit of, of unrighteousness, damaged and hurt someone and, and themselves, and then God used you to help them come back to health. You mended the net. You made the net worth using again. You made the net useful uh, again. <laughs> uh, 
Also, it must be said that love never rejoices in that kind of unrighteousness, which is the inconsistent and even false application of God's word. When people misuse God's word, a loving Christian never rejoices in that. They may find themselves it necessary to, to speak about that, to stop that, to do what they can to stop it. Jesus said in John chapter 17 that God's word is truth, and the only appropriate thing that we have to sanctify us and to set apart his elect ones. To minimize that in any way is not loving. Love rejoices in the truth, and the truth is, in fact, exactly God's word. Compromising that truth is never loving, no matter how kind it may seem in the short term. When someone is misusing, misunderstanding, misrepresenting the gospel, that is not a good thing. That is an unrighteousness, and we're not to rejoice in that, but we're to restore that one to wholeness as much as possible. Finally, love consistently encourages righteousness and praises truth. Do we find ourselves criticizing our wives, our husbands, our children more than we find ourselves praising and encouraging them and delighting in them and delighting in their spiritual growth? Love puts aside those negative things that we like to focus on and rather concentrates on the truth and the positives of our friends, family, and others. It looks for ways to lift up and to praise truth. Now, love's not stupid. It doesn't ignore the negative. But the first thing love thinks about is how to help, how to praise, how to restore, not how to publish this to the world and get the most out of it, not how, be, how to be the person who scooped and got this person taken down like they ought to be taken down. Man, this is so much fun destroying people. That's what we seem to see in the world today, and it is not. It's a destructive thing, and it ought not to be in the Christian church at all, at least in that attitude for sure. Any, co any comments or questions, concerns? Does anybody else, no raised hands, please. Just think to yourself as you're reading through this. Co <laughs> well, I need some work on that one. Oh, okay, Holy Spirit, please help me with that one. I just, you know, love doesn't want to be alone either. <laughs> the only jerk in the room. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So the word bears, okay, I'm getting to it. The word bears is actually an interesting Greek word which means to cover or to protect. And it's interesting too, when I was reading through and studying, it means to make something watertight so that even water can't get in. Well, in, in those days, first century uh, Palestine, first century Israel, that was something to make something waterproof. They didn't have foremost tarp company that they could call up and bring over a perfectly good 12 mil tarp that you could cover things up. They had to make it waterproof themselves. Uh, it's to, to, and it generally means to bear up under something, to, to, su to support, to, um, to hide or to conceal the errors and faults of others. Paul's beating this drum. He's saying it again. It bears all things. It covers things. It hides things as much as is possible. There are four qualities mentioned in this verse, and again, Paul uses hyperbole. We will unpack them separately, but it does bear saying that this verse is not implying that love will violate the precepts given earlier. Therefore, still, in light of other scripture, which we used to, we, which we used to comment on the scripture and, and interpret the scripture we're looking at, love rejects hate, it still rejects jealousy. It still hates. It still rejects bragging. It rejects arrogance. It rejects brashness, selfishness, anger, resentment, unrighteousness, maligning the word of God, 
preaching a false gospel, distorting biblical doctrine, and such like. Love will not bear, believe, hope, nor endure in anything that is unacceptable to God or that will not bring glory to Him. Thus, we must compare this section, as always, with other sections of Scripture to see just what things love actually is supposed to bear, believe, hope, and endure. The first word, which is translated bear, comes from a Greek word, as we mentioned, which means to cover closely so that even water would be prevented from entering or to protect. It came to mean to conceal another's failings or to endure them patiently. The Corinthians should have been protecting one another from legal issues, ridicule, ridicule, harm, or being exposed. They should never have gossiped, but rather kept each other's failings to themselves and worked to restore each other. Love does not bear sin, but it, but it tries to protect the sinner and work towards reconciliation. This is unnatural for fallen humanity. It is natural for us to try to expose others for many reasons. Unfortunately, human nature being what it is in this fallen world, uh, we seem to enjoy the failings of others, and we love to portray them to the world. In Corinth, there were very few, if any, attempts to protect one another. Rather, they would take each other to open court in front of the pagans over the simplest and silliest things. They would, they, would, uh, they would try to get one over on each other. When the young man committed incest with his father's wife, which should have been a quiet church discipline matter, wherein the sinner was called to account and dealt with in a loving biblical way, rather the Corinthians spread abroad their remarkable tolerance for allowing such wickedness, wickedness that it says in the scriptures that even pagans did not practice. It seems maybe we're happy when others fail because we know often inwardly that we have fallen in well as well and sometimes in the same areas. Maybe it takes the attention off of us, makes us feel bigger and better, whatever. It is unrighteous and sinful to, to expose at the improper times the sins of others. We're not to cover another's transgressions in order to refuse to bring them to account, but rather we are to cover them in a manner that we do not exploit them. One for one-upmanship or to play them to the world. Unfortunately, social media has exploited the worst aspects of this part of our nature. We see accusations hurled and no due process applied and, pe and people's reputations destroyed for lack of love. Of course, in the case of actual crimes, when the investigative procedure is followed judiciously, there are appropriate remedies. But too many people are tried in the court of public opinion today, and you can be sure they will be found wanting every single time. When we do this kind of things to others, it is the exact definition of hate. Proverbs 10:12: hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. In his commentary, Leon Morris put it this way, love conceals what is displeasing in another and does not drag it out into the pitiless light of public scrutiny. And Matthew Henry said, love will draw a veil over them as far as it can consistently with duty. It is not for blazing nor publishing the faults of a brother till duty manifestly demands it. Necessarily, necessity only can extort this from the charitable mind. Though such a man be free to tell his brother his faults in private, he is very unwilling to expose them by making him public. Thus we do by our own faults, and thus charity would teach us to do by the faults of others. Not publish them to their shame and reproach, but cover them from public notice as long as we can and be faithful to God and to others. There may become a time when it will be necessary to publish someone else's failings. Do not it let be your first impulse to do so. That is almost never the right thing. Now, I tried to explore in my mind all, 
all possibilities. And of course, there's some where you might have to blaze it out over the radio that if someone is kidnapped. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you become aware of someone else's failings. Do not let it be your first impulse to let everybody else know. That is not what we're called to do. We're called to bear those things. So love also believes all things. To think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence of. I tend, I tend to get ahead of myself when I start reading these definitions and I remember things and I blurt them out and then I turn the page and I realized, oh yeah, I was going to say that in context here, so I'll just read what I have here. This aspect of love is a non-gullible tendency to believe the best about others. If a person has a 20-year history or more of doing things appropriately in a certain area, but is accused of malfeasance in that area, love assumes that the accusation is false. In short, love actually believes the old concept of innocent until proven guilty. Today, it's the opposite. It's you're guilty and you've got to prove your innocence to us. In short, we are doing it wrong today. If the person's guilt or motivation is in question, love will assume the most positive possible motivation. If the person turns out guilty, love will still assume a positive motive. Love requires that it be fully and completely proven that the person was guilty and sinfully so. Love of this kind spread amongst the body of believers causes them to assume the best about one another in every case. This does not predispose one to being gullible and simple and thus entertaining evil in the attempt to believe the best. It simply requires that guilt be thoroughly proven. We all know people who assume the worst about others. When our children do something wrong, we say, well, that's just the way she talks. She really didn't mean it that way, even though it cut to the bone and tore you apart. But when someone we don't know or someone we dislike fails, or when we aren't applying this principle to someone we do know who missteps, our comment might be, well, you know, that's how he is. What would you expect? That's just the way that guy is. You ever expect him to do anything right? Dream on. All of us are guilty of this at times, not assuming the best of others. I know a situation where a close friend of mine was accused of a horrible sin that I knew he was incapable of. I was stunned at the number of people who began to look at him, brothers and sisters in Christ, who began to look at him with a suspicious eye. Fortunately, the accuser recanted and admitted that the accusation was done in anger. But in situations like this where a person's reputation can be destroyed, and even those who know better, who should know better, those who should believe good things about this person don't do it, the results can be catastrophic. Again, this is that relationship, that, that aspect of love that's talked about in Galatians 6.1, where he says, if they're caught in this trespasses, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit, in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. There but for the grace of God, go I. We are to restore, we're to mend, we're to cover, we're to love, we're to pray. And while doing so, look carefully at ourselves, recognizing that but for the grace of God, there I go. This is an aspect of love that believes in the person, a person who has a long history of following the Lord. When accused of something, our first thought should be, not him, not her with the will to get to the heart of it and restore. Restore the accusers in many cases is what it is. And that's what it was in this particular situation. The accuser needed restoration.
because they did it in anger and it was a lie. And it was one of those lies that today can destroy your reputation and you may never get it back. This is not the kind of love that the Christian expresses. And then hopes all things. The word hope, what a tremendous word that the Christian has. We have the hope of eternity with Christ our Lord. Even in the middle of a, a, a destructive and horrifying world that we sometimes live in, we have the hope of eternity. This aspect of love, this is a... Love knows that God writes the final chapter. He always writes the final chapter. When a loved one or someone in the public eye fails, and we have covered it, and they have persevered in their wickedness, we continue to believe in them, but they persist on their downward course. We can still hope because we know God is the final arbiter. Prayer and continued caring are the order of the day, even if while doing so we must call the offender to account. You call someone to account with a broken heart, not with the light, not with what's in it for me, not with how can I be made, look, be made to look much better than this person. You call someone to account with a heartbroken attitude, with humility. We can still hope because love never loses hope. Scripture says, never. Hopes all things, hopes all things. It does not avoid reality, but it realizes that the reality is that just as Christ did not stop at anything to redeem the elect, neither should we stop at anything in our quest to love those who actually need it the most. Who needs it the most? I mean, if there's such a thing as assigning degrees of needed love. It's those who have lost hope themselves. Those who have fallen. Those who are hurting. Those who have done the wrong thing. They got plenty of accusers around them. You don't need to be another one. Help them. Do what you can to restore. And then last, the fourth term is, is endures all things. I love the way Paul, this is like a, an ascending order. Love bears, believes, hopes, and then endures. And you'll notice there's nothing that comes after endures. So <laughs> the, the word endure is a military term, and it was used of an army to, to, to command an army or a, a squad that was responsible to hold on to an important position, hold on to that, that position no matter the cost, no matter what it costs you. Hold your ground. Stand your ground. Show endurance. They were to endure every hardship and attack in order to keep secure the position they had attained. Love will stand against any opposition in order to care for those whom it serves. Love is hopeful that those who have failed will not fail again. It never assumes that failure is inevitable. And it does not allow itself to be overwhelmed, but rather perseveres and endures and remains steady through the most difficult times. We all are, have or will need that kind of love shown towards us sometime in our lives where someone will believe in us no matter, even, and when we failed, when we failed. I don't know when it's harder to, to, to have no support when you failed or no support when you haven't failed and you've been falsely accused. They both have their, their difficulties. But we need to be the ones who are practicing this section of Scripture towards our, our fellow brothers and sisters. The four terms used in this verse are in ascending order. MacArthur said in his commentary this way, he said, love bears what is otherwise unbearable. Excuse me, I want to read it exactly as he's got it. Love bears what otherwise is unbearable, and it believes what otherwise is unbelievable. 
It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless, and in, it endures when anything less than love would give up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There is no after for endurance, for endurance is the unending climax of love. And it is such that we as br brothers and sisters in Christ, we should bear, believe, hope, and endure all things for one another. Did Christ do that for us? I mean, he didn't have to have any doubt about that we were failures. We've been failures from the get-go. He looked past that. He believed past that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing it in God doesn't have to do those things because he sees through eternity. But nevertheless, he endured all things for us. All things. He took it to the very end and sacrificed his life. I'm not saying that necessarily that might be the call for one of us who if we have to do something to love a brother or sister in Christ. But it could happen. But sometimes it's much more difficult to love them while living. <laughs> to serve them and stay alive. Isn't it? You, sometimes you look at stuff that's going on and you just take me home. Like Elijah. Take me home, Lord. Lord said, no, there's a whole bunch of others out there. 7,000 people with you. Knock it off. I wouldn't have made a very good God. Uh, too much vernacular. Knock it off, Elijah. Get up off the floor and quit moping, you dork. I don't think there's a, dork, a Hebrew word for dork, so that's probably why it was never used. But God was gracious to him and, and reminded him that there were others. He was, he was sad. He was taken aback by the sins of the failures of Israel. But uh, the Lord has ways of reminding us. Um, that was a long one, but any comments or questions about verse 7? Bears, believes, hopes, loves. It's easy to or, or endures. Bears, believes, hopes, endures. It's a good, a good sequence. Verse 8. This one was an interesting one, too. It's, it's amazing how God put together Scripture. It's so perfect. Just boom, 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 and we have everything we need to know about what love actually means. Verse 8, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. <clears throat> two, different, uh, two different words. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. So the word translated fail does not imply that love always wins. Peto. To descend from a higher, to move from a higher to a lower, to fall, to be thrust down. It doesn't imply that love always wins in a given situation. It does not imply that if we apply love, there will always be successes. What this verse is saying is that love is permanent. It, as it is a characteristic of God, so what shall never cease, it will never cease in its ability to be applied. While love does not guarantee success, Wherever there is true spiritual success, you can be certain that love was a component, a major component. The Corinthians, the Corinthians had failed catastrophically in this department because they did not love one another. They did not have one's, one another's best interests at heart. So they would rather sue to get what they needed rather than work their differences out. Because they did not love one another properly, they looked to be found more knowledgeable, wise, and impressive than their peers by appropriating gifts in a false manner. Love always makes us do things, or lack of love always makes us do things that later on, even we can see how dumb they were. But at the time, it seemed the right thing to do. Slow down. This, is not what loving, this was not loving that the Corinthians were doing, but arrogant, presumptuous, and calculating. 
Their desire was for preeminence. And so that preeminence, that desire ruled out love. Love does not need to be preeminent. It would rather serve and bless. Love does not indifferently and callously expose someone's sin, but rather seeks to cover it and pursue correction and healing. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, he's talking to the believers, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. It should certainly be said that this is not implying that love covers up wickedness and protects perpetrators while leaving victims helpless and uncared for. Once it has been determined, for example, that someone has perpetrated wickedness against children or anyone else for that matter, that person is called to account, but not in a callous and jubilant way, but rather by those who are sorrowful both for the victims and for the perpetrator and seek to restore the victims and, if possible, rehabilitate the perpetrator. In this way, love always is successful because it seeks the very best for those it comes in contact with. That is the success of love. Sometimes the very best is stopping the interaction that has happened, that is actually happening, to burst in if necessary and stop a wickedness from happening. That is also love. But then love begins to work to go about the arduous and sometimes thankless task of seeking restoration. The second section of this verse has a very interesting translation record. There are two different verb forms used to describe what will happen to two sets of gifts. Prophecy and knowledge will be done away or be done away with while tongues will cease. So done away. It means to, um, to render, stop, to stop, to some outside force to cause a cessation of the activity. So this Greek word in particular means to cease or to leave off and is in the imperfect tense, which implies continuing action and the middle voice, I jumped ahead of myself. Turn two pages. The word translated uh, done away means to stop, to reduce to an activity, to reduce an activity to nothing, to abolish, to make of null effect, to bring to naught. The second word means to cease or to leave off and is in the imperfect tense, which implies continuing action, and in the middle voice, which designate the fact that it is when used of inanimate objects, like the concept of, of uh, tongues, speaking in tongues, it's reflexive, causing its self-action, its self-causing action. In other words, it acts upon itself to stop doing what it's doing. It just quits of its own accord. Now, the point is, Paul was saying that this gift would cease in and of itself. Prophecy and knowledge will be stopped by something outside of themselves, but the gift of tongues would stop itself. Let me ask you a question. What's prophecy for today? We've talked about that. It's for expositing the Word of God, making it clear so that we can apply it in the given situations of life. When you are standing in heaven before the, the throne of God, will you need prophecy? Prophecy, Jehovah God. I'll take Jehovah God. Yeah. When you're standing before thought, the knowledge is the ability to make difficult, arcane things clear and to, to put things together in a manner that makes them usable in your lives. Do you think you're going to need that when you're standing before the throne of God, when you're in heaven? Who do you think you'll get your knowledge from? How about the Father himself? You'll be going, not to liken the father to an animal, but you don't have to, you, you got the horse. You don't have to go to anyone else. You can go right to the horse. That's an old saying. Probably not as useful here as it could be. 
The point is, you don't need knowledge. You have the Father. Tongues, and we're going we're gonna to go through this again. We've gone through this once before. Now, there's no modifier here that indicates when the ceasing of tongues would happen specifically, but knowledge and prophecy are expected to pass away when whatever is perfect comes. If you look at verses 9 and 10, it says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So knowledge and prophecy are expected to pass away when the perfect comes. When we have the Father, we will not need knowledge and prophecy. We will have Him. We will have the Son of God. We will have the Holy Spirit in our immediate, might I say, disposal. And I don't mean that in a negative sort of way. Tongues, however, will apparently cease before that which is perfect comes, as this reference indicates. Our earlier initial study of this particular sign gift, when we looked at those three periods in time when God attended the message of the prophets with signs and wonders, indicates that sign gifts come with the necessity of authenticating a message and then disappear when that particular message is complete. As a reminder, the first, the first period of miracles was during the ministries of Moses and Joshua, the second during Elijah and Elijah, and the third during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. Each of these periods lasted approximately 70 years and then ended. The final age of miracles will, be, will come in the millennial kingdom, which is future. Acts chapter 28 records the last New Testament miracle. When the writer of Hebrews refers to the attendance of the teaching of Christ and the apostles with signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts and by gifts of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 2, the statement is made in such a manner as if those signs and wonders and miracles were no longer in operation. Hebrews was written sometime around 67 to 68 AD. Further, the judicial aspect of tongues wherein scriptures teach, the scriptures teach that men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. That judicial aspect indicates that the sign gift of tongues is specifically directed at unlistening Israel who reject Christ. Tongues were not given as a sign to believers, but to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. And but by the way, when we get to that 14, we will unpack all of this, like some of it again, some of it for the first time. But uh, they were signs to unbelievers, essentially the unbelieving Jews. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD historically ended the religious practice of Judaism. At this point, the judicial value of tongues as a sign to unbelieving Israel was ended. Third, tongues self-ceased because they were less than effective means of communication and edification. Education. They were able to edify in a limited way when properly interpreted, but Paul prop Paul posits prophecy as a far superior method of communication than tongues. As we get to chapter 14, we will see point by point how God makes the case, inspiring Paul to pen words that demonstrate that as verse 19 of chapter 14 says, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I might instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And finally, Confirming the nature of the sign gifts necessarily, the confirming nature of the sign gifts necessarily ceased when the New Testament was completed. Because tongues often involve genuine revelation to the tongue speaker and to the tongue's interpreter, they were needed in some limited cases to impart needed teaching to the church prior to the closing of the canon. Once the canon of Scripture was closed, their necessity ceased. We now have the revelation of God in our hands today, and in that revelation, the Word of God, the Bible, we have everything necessary to live as Christians and to preach the gospel. 
One last thing. This particular gift, the gift of tongues, has only existed intermittently and sporadically for the last 18 centuries. None of the church fathers alluded to tongues, even Clement, who was writing to the Corinthians with their ongoing problems. Justin Martyr in the second century never mentions tongues, even among his several lists of spiritual gifts. Origen, writing in the third century, makes no mentions of tongues at all. When he combated Celsus, he argued that the sign gifts of the apostolic age were temporary and no Christian of his age exercised any of them. Chrysostom, writing in the late fourth century, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 12, points out that not only had the sign gifts ceased, but they could not even accurately be described. Augustine, also in the late fourth and early fifth century, when commenting on Acts chapter 2, verses four, verse 4, that verse says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Augustine said, In the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell on them that believed, and they spoke with tongues. These were signs adapted to that time, for there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit. That thing was done for betokening, and it passed away. The only exception to the early historians and in theologians of the church using tongues, would be of the heretic Montanus, who believed the divine revelation continued through him, and he used tongues to perpetrate that false divine revelation. It wasn't until the 17th and 18th centuries that tongues appeared again in the Severinals and the Jansenists, sects of the Catholic Church, in early Europe, or in 17th century and 18th century Europe, and among the Shakers in New England. Then in the early 1960s, the charismatic movement began, which marked the beginning of the, that last, I, I'm thinking it's this century's, no, we don't live in that century. This century is now that last century. That century's uh, forays into the misappropriation of assigned gifts. So that's when it started in the, in, the, in the last hundred years, I should say. As far as, and I, I thought I'd go into this just for uh, my own uh, edification as well. But as far as the modern defense charismatics raise for modern tongue speaking, um, I just, I'm going to give you an excerpt out of MacArthur's commentary on 1 Corinthians. He explains that. So I'm just going to read this to you. Many charismatics defend as biblical the modern tongue speaking as part of the latter-day sign spoken of by Joel in chapter 2 and quoted by Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. But it is clear from a careful examination of those passages that the prophecy does not apply either to Pentecost or to modern times. From earlier in Joel, we see that the time referred to as the second coming of Christ, of which Pentecost was only a sample, when the Lord will remove the northern army far from Israel, verse 20. Just before the millennial kingdom is established and God's chosen people turn to him, verses 21 through 27, and also Ezekiel chapter 36. It is only after this, verse 28, that the miraculous signs in the heavens and on the earth will appear. There were no blood, no columns of smoke, no darkening of the sun, or changing of the moon to blood associated with Pentecost, nor have anything such things happened in modern times. Peter, <coughs> excuse me, was not saying that Pentecost completely fulfilled Joel's prophecy, because obviously it did not. He was saying that the limited miraculous signs that had occurred shortly before he began his sermon were a glimpse of a much greater and far-reaching signs and wonders that would come in the last days, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. There simply is no biblical explanation given here for the modern reappearance of tongues or any of the other miraculous gifts. Some charismatics also maintain that the early and latter reign of Joel 2.23 refer to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and in modern times respectively. But the early rain was the literal rainfall that came in the autumn, and the latter rain was that rain which came in the spring. Joel's point is simply 
that God will make crops grow profusely in the kingdom, as the following verses 24 through 27 make abundantly clear. George N.H. Peters, a Bible scholar of the last century, said, The baptism of Pentecost is a pledge of fulfillment in the future, evidencing what the Holy Ghost will yet perform in the coming age. A contemporary theologian, Helmut Fielke, describes the miracles of the first century, including tongues, as the lightning on the horizon of the kingdom of God. So, a simple summation of this verse teaches us that when we stand before God in eternity, He will have done away with prophecy and knowledge because we will be in His presence and perfect exposition and perfect knowledge will be part of our everyday existence. Can you believe that? The strange parts of the scripture that we're going to go to the grave not completely understanding, they're going to bloom like a rose. We're going to know exactly what they mean. It's going to be so cool. Uh, Prior to that time, however, those tools that were used to authenticate his message to the contemporary hearers for, and for historical purposes to demonstrate to later readers that the canon of Scripture was complete and all that was necessary for living the Christian life ceased of their own accord. As they authenticated, this, authenticated the self-authenticating Scripture, they were no longer needed. So that closes this little bit of section here. Um, and then we're going to look at verses 9 and on, uh, starting ne when, next week or if Jess teaches, after Jess teaches. The point is to tie this up, reminding ourselves back to what at least seemed most for my life needs, if you will. Bear with me as I be selfish. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in restoring people to righteousness. It doesn't fall down. It bears people. It bears them up. It supports them. It protects them. It does everything it can to bring them back to wholeness. It believes in them. It hopes in them. But its internal hope, its final hope, is in the God of creation, who is the one who can actually restore those who need restoration. And so those things that were necessary to authenticate God's word so that when we read 1 Corinthians 13, and we look at these verses, we can look at them as correctives, restoratives, and blessings in our lives because they are, in fact, the very word of God. We don't need anything else. We have it all right here. It's like, having, it's like a mechanic having every single tool he could ever need or anticipate to fix anything that was ever broken in the history of the human race. We have it all right here. And it's marvelous. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you.